The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I'd like to welcome to the program today Diane Chittister. She joins us in studio right here in Yellow Springs. Welcome to the program, Diane. Thank you, Vic. It's lovely to be here. Diane, you have published a novel. It's called One More Day. And this is your first novel? It is, yes. And what brought this about? This is my first novel, but I've been writing fiction since I was in my 20s. Um, I went to a grad school program in fiction writing and have always focused on short stories. And then I became a journalist, um, so I never had time for a novel. So 40-some years passed, and I left my job as uh, editor of the local paper and suddenly had time, and I kind of needed a big project. So decided to try a novel. When she says the local paper, she means the Yellow Springs News. And I guess at this point I should probably admit that I've known Diane for a long time and that um, 20 years ago you interviewed me uh, for the Yellow Springs News. Right. This is before you were the editor. Uh-huh. This, this is when you were reporting for them. And you you interviewed me on the occasion of my 1,000th interview That's in right. the book nook and, That's right. and, and that was an interview with uh, David McCullough for his biography of John Adams mm-hmm. and I really appreciated that article that you wrote and um, then the following year when I left the station you did some great reporting about that and I've always appreciated that a lot and then some years later, you edited me when I was writing some columns for the Yellow Springs News. So, right, we enjoyed those. I, I wouldn't want any listeners out there to, with good memories to say, "Hmm, is Vic <clears throat> acting like <throat> one of those lawyers for our former president, explaining things that happened in the Ukraine by saying there is never was a quid pro quo." <laughs> Where are we going with this? I don't know. I, I, I'm just ex- I'm explaining that we, we've known each other a long time. We have. And, and the reason why I'm having you on the show, Diane, is because I love your new novel. Oh. It has nothing to do with anything you've done on my behalf in the past. Well, thank you, Vic. Okay. Thank All right. You. That's, that, that's where I was going with that. Got it. So how'd you get the idea for this story? Well, that's a really good question. I think... I think for me, the spark uh, to write fiction most often is what's it like to be this person, to be another person in a different situation. And there are several, four main characters um, in the book, and three of them, that's what sparked the impulse, was my wanting to see what it's like to be them. One is a character, an older man named Thomas, who is uh, who is through the book Dying, and I, I was compelled by this because one of my closest friends had, had died a few months earlier. And I, I wanted to try to understand what, how she had, 
how she had gone through that process. Um, so that compelled me with the character of Thomas. The character of Lillian um, is a woman with dementia. My mother had dementia. I, I was compelled by what was it like to be, to be her during this period. And the third character um, was Sally, a caregiver. And I, my experience in nursing homes is that there's always a couple of caregivers who are just exceptional. They're just so skilled at giving care, at caring. And they also love it, so they're full of joy. And, and they just take your breath away with how good they are. And my mother had such a caregiver, um, and I wondered, what's it like to be Sally, to be this person? So, so, yeah, I wanted to know what it was like to be Thomas and to be Lillian and to be Sally. So that's what sparked it. The story is mostly set then in this facility and um, the fourth character. You, you didn't mention uh-huh. the I didn't mention character. her. I know. Don't, she's... don't leave her out because she's an important character. <laughs> she is. She's the director of the facility. Um, I actually had the hardest time writing her maybe because she was most like me in some ways. She was a woman nearing retirement. She was a workaholic, which is a bit like me. Um, Whenever a character gets too close to me, in some ways, that's harder to write for me. I, I love the expansiveness of being somebody very different. So being someone similar, you know, in my mind when I'm writing is often a challenge. Yeah. Mm, okay. All right, let's go a little deeper on Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy is a former professor and uh, was it anthropology? Uh-huh. Okay. He's an anthropologist. And he's really smart and has a, a lot of thoughts. How did you get inside the brain of Thomas? Well, of course, I was making it up. I mean, I was just imagining, although I did, you know, I read a couple of books um, by anthropologists about what it was like for them in their mm-hmm. profession, like... Mary Bateson, a book by her. Um, she was Margaret Mead's daughter. Just to get a feel of what it might be like to be an anthropologist. And then I just started writing the character of Thomas, who I didn't realize until later. I wasn't thinking this at the time, but later on I looked back, and he's a little like my father. Um, the main thing about Thomas is his curiosity. And I wanted, I wanted someone to approach the care center where he just is has moved into with with kind of an open mind with curiosity and he also approaches aging that way which is another thing that I was looking for um yeah he's so sweet it's impossible not to like him and Sally really feels a connection with him Mm -hmm. she she wants to give him some extra care but the pressures of working in this facility, she's got coworkers who are a lot less interested in the level of care that, that she's willing to provide. Right. It, it's just a job for some of them, and, right. and they probably don't get paid that well. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, and, and then there's this fella who is, would you call him like a, a maintenance guy? There's a, there's a fella that... Yes, main, he's a maintenance guy. Yeah. Yes. And and Sally notices him. Mm-hmm. So so we've kind of got on the back burner a bit, a, a kind of a love story going on here. We do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think I had that in mind to begin with, Vic, but but that love story definitely emerged, um, which allowed, I mean, everything, fiction is just so interesting to me and kind of magical in many ways. But you're both, there's a piece of yourself in all of your characters, I think. And, and I was, you know, talking about Thomas approaching death. He has a fear of dying, and I, I have that fear. So that was, you know, part of me and Thomas. Um, you know, Sally is dealing with issues of intimacy, and, and so that was my, that was a piece of me too, you know, in the character of Sally. And I, and through the book, she does, um, yeah, allow herself finally to fall in love with actually a younger man, someone she doesn't initially think is interested in her because of her age or her weight or whatever, um, so this was a surprise to me in the process of writing that, yeah, that came out. Sally doesn't trust her emotions. And, and she's got some esteem, self-esteem issues. Yes. Yeah. She definitely does. I mean, she's from a, um, she had a difficult childhood, you know, parents who were very flawed. Um, she's from a working class family. She, as you mentioned, you know, doesn't get paid much. Not much esteem in the world for uh, um, her position would be a nurse's aide, or in Ohio it's called a state-tested nursing assistant, STNA. Mm-hmm. So it's a low-esteem position, and yet, and yet such an important job. I mean, another perhaps spark for this book is that my first job out of college was working in that same kind of job in a nursing home that really? Sally has. Yeah, a nurse's aide. Wow. And it was not for very long because then— because I had a college degree, I was able to go on to become a professional social worker, which is what I did for a while. But first of all, um, I was a nurse's aide in a nursing home, and I was, you know, giving people baths. I was uh, doing very hands-on care, and it was, it was maybe, I often thought, the hardest job I ever had and perhaps the most meaningful and certainly the lowest paid. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. Was that in Indiana? That was in Indiana. Uh-huh. Yes, it was in uh, Elkhart, Indiana. Elkhart. Yes. Isn't that where they make all the RVs? Close by, yes. Uh, okay. Quite a few. In case you're just tuning in, my guest is Diane Chittister, and we're talking about her novel, One More Day. And uh, this is a great cover. How did you uh, come up with that? Well, that's a good question, too, Vic. Um, the woman who is my... Uh, contact at the publishing company. Her name's Emily. We started this process together, and we started thinking about, well, what's what's a design? What's a visual image that conveys, you know, the book, um, an, an old people's home? And I, we couldn't come up with anything that seemed very positive. So we thought, well, we wanted a f- maybe a photo of an actual person. And so we went to stock photos of aging men looking for a character like Thomas. And what was interesting was that it was really hard to find the photo we wanted because most photos of aging men are sad or mad. You know, their ageism is a real thing. And they were just very depressing photos. And what we wanted was a photo that conveyed, you know, Thomas's engagement with life, his curiosity, because he's that kind of man. And we found this photo and both Emily and I, you know, immediately said, oh, yeah, that's the one. So it was a stock photo, so we just had to pay a little money to be able to use it. We don't know who it is. Yeah. People have asked me, is this a relative? Is this so-and-so? 
said, uh, no, we don't know who it is, but it's legal, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully. It's a profile shot, and this uh, fellow, he looks like he's enjoying a private joke. Does he? Okay, well, yeah. good, yeah. good. I want him to look, mm-hmm. again, engaged and curious and mm-hmm. optimistic, because Thomas is all of those things. Well, it was a good pick. It was worth all the extra effort. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. Connecting our community through news, music, and storytelling on the air and online. I've been joined in studio by Diane Chittister. We'll continue our conversation right after this. The book note continues on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and I've been joined in studio by Diane Chittister. Her new novel is One More Day. Let's talk some more about uh, these characters. We, we just talked about Thomas. This uh, other patient, she gives us some comic relief, which, which is a big surprise, I think, because she's suffering from dementia. Mm-hmm. And this is such a, a prevalent thing, such a prevalent situation for so many people in America. Millions and millions of people are going through this. And she just wants to find her house. She wants to find her family. Mm-hmm. She, she's walking around this facility. She, she wants to get out. She's real good at getting out. Mm-hmm. They, they, she keeps sneaking out the door, and she wanders around, and she's looking for her family. And, and we just we feel so much for her. And we feel sad for her, but, but we also get some amusement from her. She's just such a, a live wire, and she'll just go into people's rooms. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, there's, just, there's, there's sort of a comic element there, which sure. I, I appreciate it because then we don't feel like it's really that depressing. It's just it's mm-hmm. something that we're dealing mm-hmm. with. It's something that we face. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting that when I've given talks on the book or had – conversations with people, um, questions about Lillian, the woman with dementia, are the most frequent ones I get. It sort of indicates that everyone's concerned about dementia, and they say, you know, how did you get into the mind of this character? Um, Obviously, it's my imagination, but it's also my experience with my mother, who had some dementia, not as much as the Lillian character. But I think in writing this character, and she was actually probably the easiest to write. There was a, I found myself writing really quickly, and the humor surprised me too, but it seemed to come out of her character. I, I looked back later on and thought what I was trying to do was, was free my mother a little bit. My mother was like Lillian in that she had always been a good girl, a very good girl. And dementia, I, I'm not at all trying to deny that there's heartbreaking aspects to it. But there was also with my mother a little bit of freedom, you know, a little bit of stepping out of her usual role. And I think what I did with the character of Lillian was was go a few steps further, you know, quite a bit further with that freedom. Um, like maybe I was trying to free my mother a little bit. And yeah, so that's where Lillian came from. Let me try to read between the lines a little bit here and maybe clarify what I'm I'm hearing you say okay. about your mom, and it's that she'd always been a good girl, and maybe her personality changed a little bit, and she became a little more free, a little more um, expressive of things that, that maybe she'd been repressing when she was younger. 
You know, maybe that, Vic. I'm not sure. Um, what, what, how did, did her personality change at all? Or? She would just do things. I don't have any specifics in mind, but, uh-huh. but occasionally she would do things that she would not ordinarily have done because uh-huh. they, were, they were, you know, outside the lines um, right. of what, what good girls did. And, and my mom... Maybe she forgot where those lines were, you right. know, with dementia. Right. So she had a little more freedom. She had more freedom, right. Uh-huh. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I was, I was reading. Right. And okay. I, I certainly don't mean to be diminishing the, the sadness of dementia because sure. that's, you know, with the character, she, she is lost. She is very yeah. much lost. And, yeah, I hope that's conveyed too. But, but I was surprised at, um, I know, at the humor that came out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've all experienced interactions, I think, with, with people who have cognitive mm-hmm. difficulties mm-hmm. or issues, sure. and, and more sure. so all the time, particularly as we get older and, and we encounter the, the feeling that, well, gosh, that could happen to me. Right. And I, I don't even remember the last time I heard the term dementia or, or, or Alzheimer's. I, I don't remember those terms being used many years ago. But my grandmother, I think, probably had it, mm-hmm. and right. I had five siblings. My grandmother never knew my name. She'd always call me by my brother's name, and I don't think it had anything to do with dementia, but she just never—she always called me Kurt. <laughs> Whenever she'd see me, she'd say, hi, Kurt, and I was fine with that. I answered to it, and, and then her memory started going, and—, mm-hmm. and um, she had been a, a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She did not drink. Good Methodist woman. Sure. And um, we would have these family get-togethers, and she didn't remember a lot of stuff, particularly mm-hmm. stuff that happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so we would give her a little glass of champagne, and we'd tell her it was sparkling cider. And she would drink it and loved it, this woman that never drank alcohol. And... Then she would suddenly start remembering all this <laughs> stuff from like the 1920s. I mean, just her memory would just go boom, like it had just been locked into place, like we'd stuck in the cassette, and there it was. And, and it was pretty amazing. And she just had the grandest time. Her, her cheeks would get all rosy, and she'd be smiling, and just a very serious woman. <laughs> and we maybe that was not a good thing to do, but— Sounds we, we, like she had a little freedom then. Too. Yeah, we got a lot of joy out of that. Yes, and I know she yes. did too. And probably not what the doctor would prescribe, but my mother took after her. My mother was also a very temperance-oriented person. Mm-hmm. They would give her a glass of wine on New Year's Eve, and I would watch her sneak into the kitchen and dump it down the sink. And late in life, her doctor said, you know, Virginia, you really should have a glass of red wine with dinner. I think it'd be good for you. And she's like, this quack. <laughs> she wouldn't do it. I wished that she had, but she never, she wouldn't listen. So sometimes self-medication, I guess, maybe yeah, is yeah, effective. Yeah, those, those are good stories. But, but we digress. Uh, Diane Chittister is my guest. We really haven't talked much about the hardest character you had to write. Now, why was she the hardest one? Because she's so much like you? Well, I think because there were similarities. Again, she was a she was an aging woman, a woman nearing retirement age. Uh, she was a bit of a workaholic. Her work was really her life. And during the years that I was editor of the paper, I, I certainly could identify with that. So 
Yeah, I think that's why she was hardest to write for me. Um, I, I was glad, ultimately, that she was in the book because she allowed me to, to have a different perspective on, on what was going on. Obviously, uh, the characters of Thomas and Lillian are residents, so they just have their perspective. And Sally is a caregiver, so it's like Beth is looking down on the facility from above a bit. And they're going through a difficult change in the book. Um, it had been a nonprofit. It was just sold to a small but a for-profit company. So they're they're trying to navigate. She's trying to navigate that change in a way that doesn't diminish the care that her her residents have. Um, yeah. So, but but one thing that character allowed me to do, I was always trying to research the things I was talking about in the book, like Thomas's examples of of anthropology, um, Beth's examples of things she wanted to do to have a better facility. I mean, these are real things in the world. Um, and so I got to know a little bit more about what what people who run facilities are thinking in terms of care for older people. And one thing was the red plates. There's a place where, where Beth is asking her new owner for red plates for everybody because people with dementia are supposed to eat better if the food is served on red plates. Hmm. Nobody knows why, but it's a thing. And, um, but that's, that's true, apparently. So I had read that research, and I just slipped it into the book because it was kind of interesting. Well, as, yeah. a, as a reader, I felt like you were dealing with a lot of uh, issues. This administrator, you described her as a workaholic. She is completely devoted to her job. It's a small facility. She really cares about the level of care. And this company that's buying the facility, the people that are coming in from this company don't seem to respect her viewpoints or what she's done or her history or her opinions about the way things should be run. They're more into bigger is better, uh, right, right. economies of, of scale, uh, blah, 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 bottom line. And um, plus, you've got Lillian, who this place is not supposed to have people with dementia. Right. So right. she's been kind of allowing something to occur that maybe isn't by the book. And Lillian mm -hmm. keeps causing problems because she keeps escaping. Right. They can't keep her in the facility. And, yes. And yes. so the administrator is getting in trouble and is, is essentially being put out to pasture because of her caring about the facility so much. It's, it's backfiring on her. Sure, sure. I mean, she's a flawed human being, and she makes mistakes. I mean, I, I do mean for her to have made a mistake in allowing Lillian to stay in the facility. She probably shouldn't be there. Um, and yet, you know, I don't think we have the right answer yet for people with dementia in terms of how best to care for them. I, I, have off, I have also been affected by uh, the experience of my ex-husband, who was in a, a locked-door memory care unit facility in the Northwest. Um, and, well, that's pretty heartbreaking, obviously. There was safety there, but was there quality of life? You know? and, and Beth has, has leaned into the quality of life side and obviously made a mistake on the safety side of the issue, and that's a huge, important thing, safety. So 
Lillian probably shouldn't have been there, but I'm not sure where she should have been, Vic. You mm-hmm. know, it's I don't think we I don't think we have it down yet um, in terms of care for people with dementia. Yeah, it's really kind of heartbreaking, and uh, I have a good friend who's uh, recently been dealing with the same kind of situation, being in a locked door mm-hmm. facility, mm-hmm. and um, he'll call me and and he'll say things like. Um, yeah, I, I need to get out of here. Uh, you know, right, they're they're going right. to come and get me and take me out of here. And he's got sure. this hope that 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 he's going to get out. And it just it just tears your heart apart, of you know, course. to hear this. Absolutely, and, and, absolutely, uh, it's, it's tough. My guest is Diane Chittister, and we're talking about her novel, One More Day, which I don't want people to think it's depressing. I mean, besides Lillian, it's very uplifting. I think, I think that. When Thomas dies, mm-hmm. it's not a spoiler to say that you know you're said he's dying in the story. Right, right. When Thomas dies, it's pretty darn cool. <laughs> I'm glad that you feel that way, Vic. I I will say, I mean, to me that was a big part of writing this was was moving through his death. Um, and again, as I said, my good friend had recently died, and I was trying to grapple with how. How do you die in a way that leaves you peaceful? Because I understood that was the case with her. I wasn't able to be very close to her physically. Um, Thomas was frightened, very frightened of dying. Um, My friend had been. I I am too. And I was trying to figure out how do you get through that fear? And, you know, I mentioned fiction being sort of a magical process. Sometimes you just don't know where stuff comes from that you write. And Thomas ends up finding a way through his death that is not frightening. And it has to do with his love for his daughter. And and that, you know, to me, that's that was a big takeaway of writing the book is, oh, maybe I could do this too, you know, when the time comes. Maybe... Maybe that kind of love for your family and your children or your spouse or whoever is something that, that you know, gets you through that hard, that hard part. I'll say that in general, one thing I wanted to convey in the book um, was the expansive emotional world of a care center. I, I have often in my life when I've had loved ones in care centers, such as my mother and earlier on my mother-in-law, um, you know, regularly visited, and and I know that most people come away with how depressing it is mm, and yeah. how sad it is, and and there's no denying that. I don't mean I don't mean to deny it at all. I certainly feel those feelings. Yet it's always seemed to me that there's so much more there. That there's so much more. There's a rich emotional life there, and partly it's because there are always people like Sally. There are always a couple, at least very talented caregivers who, you know, not only are good at their job, but they take great joy in it. So that joy and that love is just, it's just there in the air. And um, then there's the sadness as well. And altogether, there's just, there's just this rich emotional world. And I think that's another reason that I, that I wrote the book. It seems that maybe this book was a way for you to kind of work on some of your own stuff. Absolutely. I think that's what fiction does. Yeah, yeah. What what is it about death that frightens you? 
Well, um, like Thomas in the book, I do not have a sense of life. I don't have a belief in life after death. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's the finality of it. Um, mm-hmm. Since I was a child, I found that to be pretty pretty hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think yeah. it's easier for people who believe in life after death to think about death? Because I know people that believe that, and uh, they're they're more scared of death than, than anybody. Really? Okay. I've always kind of assumed it would be easier if you had that kind of belief system, but I could be wrong. Well, like, yeah. maybe it's because they think they're going to the wrong place. <laughs> well, that would make it hard. <laughs> they, they don't want to go there. People I know are pretty sure they're not going to the wrong place. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we uh, usually don't talk about deeply spiritual matters on this program, but um, hey, here we are. We're, we're, we're all facing yeah, it. Yeah. I, there isn't a single person out there listening who isn't going to face it. You know, I think the biggest surprise to me about this book um, since it's been published has been the number of people who have said to me, gee, I'd really like to read your book, but I just don't want to read about getting old. I just, oh. you know... And these are people my age, people I thought I was writing the book for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I certainly respect that, but that saddens me a little bit because it, it seems to me, I mean, not just because I want them to read my book, but in general, it seems to me that what fiction does at its best is is make us a little bit bigger, you know, expand us. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're reading about people who are not us. We're reading about people different people in different situations in life. And hopefully when we do that, you know, we have their feelings, we have their experiences on some level, and and we get a little bit bigger. We feel more feelings. And I guess I just finished a really good book where I had that experience. It was uh, Barbara Kingsolver, Prodigal Summer. Uh-huh. I don't know if you read that. No. came out 20 years ago, and I just reread it when I had a cross-country train trip. And it's an amazing book, um, very, very moving. And at the end, I was sobbing, as I always do with really good books, because because there's so many feelings involved. And, you know, but that sobbing, to me, expands me and makes me, you know, makes me more open-hearted. It's mm. a little bit like Buddhism, I think. Thomas maybe has a touch of that in the book. So, yeah. Did you come back here on the Amtrak? I did. I bet that was beautiful. <laughs> I bet it's you saw some beautiful, beautiful things. Uh, yeah, I go through Glacier Park. Oh, nice. Know, it's amazing. Nice. Yeah. You're listening to Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I've been joined in studio by Diane Chittister. We're talking about her novel, One More Day, and we have one more segment coming up right after this. <laughs> You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and we produce The Book Nook right here in our studios at WYSO, and it airs every Saturday morning at 7 o'clock and every Sunday morning at 10.30. Diane Chittister is my guest, and we're talking about her novel, One More Day. Diane, uh, what kind of reaction have you been, you've been getting besides from the people that don't want to read it because they don't want to read about uh, getting old? And uh, you know, I think it's very uplifting. So I would recommend that those people think again because, uh, by golly, I, it cheered me up. I'm glad to know that. It, it cheered me up too, Vic. <laughs> I, I think I came out of writing the book feeling better about aging, feeling better about death. 
um, not not hopefully having, you know, diminished any of those realities, but but just kind of finding a way around or through maybe some of the hard stuff. Um, and there's also the love story of Sally and and Shannon, the maintenance guy, and mm-hmm. you know there is there is a new beginning at the end of the book, um, and that's that is life, right? I mean that is life going on, and so yeah, I it was important to me, I guess, in my own need for what I write to have there be hope at the end, to have there be a feeling of hope. And I'm I'm glad to know you felt that. That's what I was. That's what I was hoping too. So, what kind of feedback are you getting from people who have actually read the book? Um, a lot of good feedback. I mean, I am getting a lot of good feedback. People do say that they felt uplifted by it. They say that you know it wasn't what they expected. Um, they expected it to be sad and depressing, and and it was not ultimately that. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So. Well, as I mentioned at the outset of the program, uh, you interviewed me 20 years ago, and I know you've done a lot of interviews, and I find it a lot easier to be the interviewer than to be the interviewee. So I'm wondering how you approached interviewing and how you have approached being interviewed. Hmm. Well, they're very different, and I'll say I agree with you. I think it's easier being the interviewer than the interviewee. Um, to me, you know, and partly that's my personality. I am a little bit shy, so it's a little harder for me to expound on something, even if it's my own book. Um, so so how I would approach interviewing was, was just trying to, you know, trying to learn as much about the person as I could, and respond to their to the points where they were showing some emotion where they were where they had something deep going on in them and um, maybe that's what you're doing right now Vic <laughs> I'm just realizing this wait a minute are you doing that too I have no idea what I'm doing okay that, that's the thing with interviewing is you just kind of go if you're paying attention to the conversation uh-huh. you go where it takes you well, that's, you know what, that's exactly the same thing I'm talking about. Yeah, just that you're saying it differently. Mm-hmm. You're, because those points where someone is feeling especially deeply about something, those are the points that I would zero in on as an interviewer. Mm-hmm. And that's also going where the conversation takes you. So, yes, it is the same thing. What, what's the most memorable interview you ever did? Oh, boy. There were so many, Vic. The most memorable one? There has to be one that you just look back at and you go, I can't believe that one. (laughs) The one that comes to mind is Ollie Loud, who was a former— Oliver Loud, longtime Antioch professor? Really? Yeah, yeah. I was was interviewing him about his life's work or something something huge like that. Uh And Ollie Loud— I don't know if you knew him, but he was not. extremely intelligent and, and kind of talked on a level. Was he a physicist? He may have been a physicist. He was kind of swirling on some level above me. Mm-hmm. And every sentence was complete and perfect. And I was used to jotting down notes as somebody talked, and I could kind of get the essence of what they were saying. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't possibly get the essence, get all these perfect sentences down. So... Anyway, I had to go back over and over again, so maybe that's why it comes to mind. Yeah. 
perfectly composed sentences. They were perfectly composed, mm -hmm. yes. I was recently listening to an interview with another Antioch professor who is no longer with us, and that's exactly what I noticed about him. Hmm. Same thing, it perfectly composed sentences, exact endings, mm -hmm. This I've thought this all out, stop. Just like that. It's really, be really beautiful to listen to. Yes, yes. Can't oh. imagine talking that way, but yes, sounds <laughs> exciting. I, I could never do that. Yeah. My guest is Diane Chittister, and her new novel is One More Day. And as you came into the station today, one of the first things you said to me was you mentioned the name Red. And I was very happy to hear that because we have this in common and People who listen to this show regularly know that I'm a cat guy. I love cats. I, I have seven of my own. And um, a number of years ago, we have cats. We live out in the country. We have cats that just show up just for whatever reason. They've been abandoned. Uh, they're feral. They, they live out in the country. Someone We're, we're kind of near Young's Dairy. People dump cats over there all the time. Mm -hmm. So we had this cat that I spotted. And, and he was always on the move. I, I would see just this flash of orange going through the woods really fast. And I saw him two or three times. And I thought, wow, that cat is fast. But he never slowed down. And finally, I coerced him into coming up to me. And uh, he was very friendly. He, he obviously was a domestic cat who belonged hmm. to somebody at one point. And so I started feeding him. And he was just wonderful. And I decided to name him Red. And we took him to the vet because one of our rules is we don't have cats that can reproduce because that there's just too many of them Absolutely. already and so many of them showing up. So we took him to the vet, and the vet said, uh, well, he said, somebody's already taken care of that. This cat obviously belonged to somebody uh -huh. who cared enough about him to take him to the vet and, mm. and get him taken care of. And he was just wonderful. He's just a lover. And... The thing with, with uh, male cats, you would think some of them would be less aggressive, but, but male cats tend to be a lot like um, male humans. Uh, they're still aggressive, some of them. And, sure. we, and we had these two old male cats who resented Red and didn't like him being around, and they would pick on him, and they would mm. beat him up, and they would tear him up, cut him up, slice him up, claw him, scratch him, bite him. And he, the poor guy was just getting brutalized, and he would never fight back because he was a lover, not a fighter, even though he wasn't an active lover. He, that's just not that – wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't his gig. He just wanted to be petted and to – oh, he loved to eat. If there was a food dish around, he was there. And, and so we said, okay, we've got a real problem here, and we – my partner, she instigated this. She said, we need to put posters up downtown with a picture of Red saying, we're looking for a good home for Red because he's in a bad situation here. He, this was not going to keep going on this way. It, he would have really gotten badly hurt. And so we put these posters up, and you apparently saw one. Mm -hmm. And you arranged for Red to get adopted. And he found the most loving home, the most perfect situation. And when we took him over there, he was all scratched up and he went and hid under the bed. And, and then he just, he and his new person just fell in love. 
Do you want to tell the rest of of Red's story? Sure, no, they did. Um, Well, a little more about that. It was my ex-husband, and he was his favorites. He's a big cat lover, maybe not on the level of you, Vic, but almost. And his favorite cat had just had recently died. So, and he was also dealing with dementia himself. So he was going through some hard things. And I saw the poster and thought. Yeah, I think maybe Roger could use this cat. He was up for it, and uh, yes, they did fall in love. Red used to sit on his chest and just just gaze into Roger's eyes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were in love, you know. Uh-huh. And and it just, you know, through the hard times that Roger was going through, this cat just gave him so much love. So it was lovely. And he's now with my daughter, the cat, because my ex-husband died. Um, and her husband, and she has a new one-year-old baby, and I was just saying that the baby adores the cat and sometimes just walks up and whacks the cat on the back, which we try to avoid, but sometimes we don't get there in time. And Red doesn't even flinch. I mean, he just allows it. He's just amazing. So, yes. That's Red. (laughs) That's Red. He's not a fighter. He's definitely a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, he is, and and that's such a, a happy story. And, yeah. and whenever we run into each other, you always update me on red. <laughs> I have to show you pictures. Yeah, you show too. me pictures of red, and that just makes me so happy that, that he landed in, in a situation yeah. where, where he can have the love he needs and he can give the love that he needs to give. Well, he has given a lot of love, Vic, so and hearing about that. And hearing about him with this baby, you know, that's just, <laughs> I've seen photos of them together. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the baby just adores him. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, Red is her favorite favorite in the world, favorite thing. Are there any other cats in that house? No, there is a dog, but no other cats. Oh, so he he's rules the roost. Yes, he does, yes. Good for him. Do they let him go outside at all? Is that a problem? They try not to let him go outside. He's, he he's likes to go frantically outside. frantically wants to go outside, uh-huh, yeah, so occasionally yeah. he does. Is, yes. he, is he still a big eater? Oh, yes, uh-huh, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, when Roger had him, I said, Roger, I said, you can't leave the food dish out full of food all the time. He'll, <laughs> he'll just keep eating and eating and eating. And then the next time I saw him, I said, Roger. <laughs> I think it's safe to say Roger did that. <laughs> He's like, he what? quickly became uh, Rubenesque, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he, got, he got big. Uh, okay, so we, we talked about Red. Um, let's talk some more about your writing and, and um, some of these short stories that you've written. I have never read them. What Mm -hmm. kind of stuff were you writing about? Well, um, again, there was always the spark of what would it be like to be that person. So it was often a person I would observe who I was just intrigued by. You know, who were they? Um, So different people in different areas of life, they were mainly dealing with hard stuff, you know, a loss of some kind. And and the the story was, was... Kind of about how they got through, I guess, or a uh-huh. glimpse into that process. Um, yeah, yeah. I, on my train ride, I was just thinking about having been inspired to write. There was a man in the little tiny sleeping compartment right across the aisle from me uh, a couple years ago. And there was something very, very dignified about him. He was an older man and very lonely about him as well. And I ended up writing a story about about him. So, you know, usually the stories were sparked by real life. Um, well, always they were. I mean, but observations, not about things that actually happened to me, but situations where I thought, well, what would it be like to be that person? That's, that's mm-hmm. what always sparks it for me. 
That's so old-fashioned, thinking about, number one, riding on a train, which <laughs> I think is so cool, yeah. and to be thinking about writing books and writing stories while riding on the train. I mean, that just seems like something from 100 years ago. Well, I will say that a train is the very best place to read a novel. Absolutely. Mm. It's like, yes. All right. You already told us you read the Barbara Kingsolver mm-hmm. book on the way back. Reread it, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other stuff uh, do you like to read? Well, I love fiction. Um, actually, the best, the best advice I got about writing a couple years ago was I took a fiction writing class, a novel writing class, and the teacher said, Everything, every novel you read is your teacher. And I honestly had been reading all my life and never thought about that. But she was absolutely right. And I read differently now. I read novels all the time because I'm wanting to write novels. And I'm always learning from them. I mean, I'm always, you know, writing a novel is basically moving through time. You're either moving fast or you're moving slowly. And so when I'm reading a book, I'm looking at why did the writer speed up here? Why did they slow down? You know, why did they include this description but not that one? Um, You're becoming more analytical, huh? Well, very much so because, Mm -hmm. you know, the craft of fiction writing is very much, I mean, it's a craft. It's a craft of, of, again, moving through time and what to include, what to leave out. Um, Slowing something down is is most likely when there's an emotional moment that you want to draw out for the uh-huh. reader. You want the reader to experience this emotion. So you draw it out with, with description or with um, just slowing it down with little actions. There's all kinds of little techniques you can use. Sure. And um, that's what I learn all the time from and, reading. And, so. and who are some of these authors who are teaching you? Oh, my goodness, every single one. But uh, one of my favorite books recently is Hamnet. Have you read that book? I've heard of it. Maggie O'Farrell, who, mm-hmm. and it sent me back to everything she's read. She's, mm-hmm. what, a Scottish or Irish? I think she's an Irish writer. Sounds Irish, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a story um, told from the point of view of Shakespeare's wife, who mm-hmm. we think of as Anne Shakespeare, but in the book she's Agnes. And it's around the death of their child, whose name was actually Hamnet, which is which was interchangeable with the name Hamlet at the time. Mm-hmm. So, this book's been getting some buzz. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. it's an astonishing book. Mm-hmm. I read it in the fall, and I, I'm rereading it now too, mm-hmm. um, because I'm learning from her so much. I mean, again, it's a very slow book. There's a mm-hmm. lot of emotion in this book, and it's it's basically about a mother losing a child. So that's you know that's the big theme. Okay. Yeah. So you're working on another novel. Oh, I am. Mm -hmm. You bet. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us exactly what it's about and how it ends? Okay. I'm just teasing you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Tell us us what you want about it. Don't tell us us much. Oh, I won't tell you how it ends. You might jinx yourself, you know, talking about it. A lot of writers are very superstitious about talking about work in progress. Mm, I don't, well, I won't say a lot about it, but having written about aging and death for my first time around... I decided this time to have it be about love. And so this book centers on um, a wedding of two 30-something people. And it's mostly from the point of view of the two mothers, um, women about my age, and the mother of the groom and the mother of the bride, as well as the father of the bride and, uh, let's see, the young man, the groom, who's getting married So this first book had four perspectives, four characters. I was telling the story from their point of view, Vic. And at the time, I thought, geez, this is a lot of work. I mean, (laughs) you have to kind of keep all these things in mind. And, Uh you know, one thing somebody does affects the other. I thought the next time it's going to be just one point of view. 
But as it turns out, this new book has five points of view. So mm -hmm. clearly I didn't learn my lesson on that. I think the next book will have only one point of view. Sounds like you're pretty far along then. Oh, yeah. I have, I have a draft. I mean, maybe it's my third draft, a draft done that I'm almost ready to get some outside opinion. I suspect there'll be three or four more drafts. So it's yeah. finished. It's just being revised. Yes, yes. But, mm -hmm. of course, that's, well, that's the big thing is the revision. You know, the, mm -hmm. the first draft, I use a system where I write really fast the first draft. Uh-huh, sure. And, and so then what you have is a really, really bad first draft, but mm -hmm. it has the story. And basically, you know, you're not stuck trying to figure out the story. And then you go back over and over and over, probably six or seven times to make it better. So it flows out. Yeah. And the then Diane, the editor, puts on her hat. <laughs> exactly. Right. I got you. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Nice. My guest has been Diane Chittister. We've been talking about her novel, one more day and uh, you heard about it on the book nook uh, diane do you have any parting thoughts for our uh, 82 million listeners out there <laughs> glad to know there's 82 million uh -huh. well okay down to 81 you better hurry <laughs> thanks vic i really enjoyed talking with you about the book it's been a pleasure for the book nook i'm vic McCunis. <laughs> <laughs>